The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room. I'm Anthony Curry, and with me is my co-host, Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen. Hello. So later in the show, we've got a couple of things for you. We'll be going to Asia to assess the impact of the collapse of travel company Thomas Cook on Chinese conglomerate Fosun. Then we'll come back to New York and to London to delve into the pledges the financial world made at the United Nations Climate Action Summit in New York. We kick it off, though, with Adam Newman's spectacular fall from the top of WeWork. This week, he stepped down as CEO and relinquished majority control of the shared office space company he founded. We're joined by Rob Siren in New York. Hello, Rob. Hey, Jen. And Liam Proud in London. Hi, Liam. Hi, guys. Hey, Liam. So you guys are going to help us explain this big mess and what went wrong and and why it kind of went south so quickly. So, um, Rob, let's start with you. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just to understand the situation. Uh, kind of talk about when um, they first went out with the IPO, where they were with the value, and just how quickly that had collapsed. So they went out um, about a little more than a month ago, I guess. Um, okay, and they, it's only been a month because it feels like it, this story it feels like has a been a very long time. Yeah. A long time. So they went out. The last funding round um, ostensibly valued the company at forty-seven billion. Okay. Um, that was how long ago? That was um, earlier in the year. I think yeah. it was in January. January. The thing is that that forty-seven billion figure wasn't quite as it seemed, because um, SoftBank, they were the money putting the money in. They bought some shares at $47 billion. However, they bought shares from the employee at a, employees at a much lower valuation. So it seemed like they were trying to bump up the valuation. But SoftBank was still putting out a good game and saying, you know, hey, we're, we're, such, we're transforming yeah. the world, transforming office space, you know, $47 billion, maybe we'll go public for even more than that. This also meant that by, by the end of this funding round, SoftBank over over time had put in a total of about $11 billion. Is that right? Correct, yeah. I'd say they were very big well, shareholder. Well, yeah, big, big shareholder. Um, the problem, of course, is that um, while WeWork's sales were expanding very rapidly, they were doubling, um, their losses were um, huge. Okay, really well, the biggest revenue. so let's just stop there because mm-hmm. there, are, there have been a lot of um, other companies that have been in similar situations. Uber is certainly one of them. But this seems even more unique in the sense that um, not only were they not making money, that there's this big question mark over the business model, but just the actual management itself uh, just well, spiraled out of control well, so quickly that it's I've, I've never seen anything like that. Yeah, me, me neither. So, so Newman, uh, he's one of the co-founders. Um, under his leadership, uh, the company has done it's been managed really poorly. So there were, if you look through the related party transactions, there were all these sorts of red flags raised because, for instance, he had shares, uh, Newman had shares in buildings which the company rented uh, and would look like sweetheart deals. Um, th- he had trademarked the word we and charged the company uh, for using that. Perhaps my favorite <laughs> yes. risk factor. Um, there were other things like he like. Uh, a few years ago, he bought um, a stake in a wave-making machine company, a, a wave pool <laughs> yeah, machine company, because he too. liked surfing. Um, so there were all these things that made it look as if, you know, this wasn't a company run for shareholders. It was run for Adam Newman. Okay, also, but let's stop here, because a lot of Silicon Valley 
firms are not run for shareholders. They're run for the founder who mm-hmm. also has like outsized control and voting control and all this kind of stuff. So again, not that unusual. Yeah, but the thing is, put it, put those unusual things together and it is unusual, if you see what I mean. Um, because it's one thing fine if you're Google and you do a kind of crazy, you know, you get a lunch or you get to do some kind of moonshot program. Fine. They make so much money from having you know, near monopoly on internet advertising. It doesn't really matter. Or you can take the company, you know, like if you lose money, fine. But then, you know, there's potential like, like Uber, for instance, some investors think, well, you know, if they become kind of the dominant firm in the U.S., remain that way, and they there's a, um, a kind of a truce with Lyft, then perhaps, you know, they're just going to be collecting money off the top from each ride. So you can see why investors might think, hey, it's going to make money in the future. But to c- combine the two things and say, hey, you've got an office share sharing company, which, you know, it's not that hard to set up competition to this thing. So the long-term margins aren't, aren't going to be great and have horrible governance together. It's just a really bad combination. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that we're talking about this as a, as a Silicon Valley company, as, you know, we've compared to Uber, Lyft, and others. It's just real estate. All you're doing is renting real estate like plenty of other firms have done before. And it's almost like it's become a, real, a sort of real estate bubble on the back of some kind of pseudo-Silicon Valley attachment. And... and um, I don't quite understand that. Liam, you've been looking a lot at the valuation about how bad it's got and how much money they're on the hook for. Um, how does this all play into the, the whole idea that it's a Silicon Valley firm? How does that play into how people you think have thought about the valuation and then what they're now looking at and thinking, this is a lot worse than we thought on the money as well as the governance? Yeah, I mean, just, just on the point about it being similar to other Silicon Valley companies, I mean, yeah, that's that's true, obviously. I mean, Uber was burning cash before it went public as well, but it's just... I think what was important about WeWork was the extent of its financial dysfunction. It was kind of unlike anything else we've seen, really. I mean, it's it's it, it generates you know a, a negative operating cash flow margin. I mean, it's it's its main operations <clears throat> consume cash rather than generating cash, and then below that on the cash flow statement, it has capital capital expenditures capex, which are bigger than its revenue. So it's 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 truly astonishing. So you add it all up, and it burns more cash. Than it even brings in through revenue. Now, it's also getting worse. It's 2016, it was burning less cash as a percentage of revenue than it did last year. And the opposite was true with Uber, for example. It was its cash burn was was shrinking as a percentage of revenue. Okay, so Liam, let's kind of um, crystallize this though. You did a column where you basically everything is worth something, right? And it's the fact is we work is probably worth something and you basically found the floor i don't know if that's moved since perhaps it has <laughs> but what why don't you give us that magic number of what you think we work yeah, is we, worth. we were starting at 47 billion we're starting at 47 year. billion where do you think it, it yeah and it's also worth saying that in you know in in the interim between that 47 billion the banks pitching for the ipo were saying I think Morgan Stanley was saying it could be worth up to 100 billion. You know, they always inflate that in IPO pitches, yeah. but just also remember that number as well. You know, the, so one way to think about it is just um, what are the what are the listed peers? What's a, a listed company where you do have a kind of market price that you could compare WeWork to? And there's there's this company called IWG, which is quite quite an old British company that basically does the same thing, um, and it's okay. definitely not valued like a tech company. If you slap the, their valuation onto WeWork, what do you arrive at? Well, if if you put it on the same sales multiple, you can, you could you could maybe say it was worth about five billion. If you if you make some very um, rough assumptions about the uh, potential profitability of WeWork's kind of mature 
buildings, then you could put it on a what you call an EBITDA multiple, the same as IWGs, and you might even get less than four billion, about three point six billion dollars. Okay, and I think the last number we saw in the IPO market in the IPO rounds was was maybe ten to twelve billion. So you're looking yeah. at a floor even even lower than that. And so, uh, but there's not it's not just that is there? You think you know this, this company you're basically saying needs to go public as well, right? Be- because of the cash burn. So not going public. Yeah, it's it's consuming huge amounts of cash, and and it was going to unlock about three billion of um, equity funding through the through the IPO was the idea, which would which would give them access to about a six billion dollar um, overdraft facility with with a load of banks. So you know that some people thought that would that would last them up to you know kind of early 2020s, at which point they would not be consuming cash anymore. <clears throat> but it's very hard to see how they can get that kind of funding in private markets. I mean, SoftBank has already put 11 billion if you include its affiliates into it. I mean, e- even if you make some, you know, we, we put out this calculator, Breaking Views, which was trying to work out how much cash the business was consumed using some very rough assumptions. You know, even if they very abruptly get to profitability levels that are above IWGs, I mean, it's still going to need, you know, five, six, seven billion dollars just to get there by 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 the estimates of this calculator so right. it's it's, yeah. it's it's not as if this is all over so what are we are we looking at um we work because i'm so sorry about this we're looking at we work becoming won't work very soon is, it, is this going to go <laughs> under or what do you think it's it's possible right you know i mean that's what 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 is what is a company going under other than it running out of cash and not being able to fund its operations anymore Liam, I want to throw this out to you because you, you've been following SoftBank as well. So just to kind of put this in perspective, they said it's worth $47 billion. I mean, they we were, you know, said it was valued at $47 billion. They uh, shrink that number down to half, and now they're, they're pulling the IPO altogether. And then they're, like, ditching Adam Newman. They're saying, like, hey, he's not going to be the CEO. He's lost some of his board seats. Well, he's staying where, as chairman. Let's just make sure we're clear on that, right? He's staying as chairman. He's staying as chairman. So just where has SoftBank been throughout this entire process? Like, how does this happen? Mm. This, you know, the sort of the, the sort of chatter, at least in, in London, amongst the kind of tech bankers that spend an awful lot of time courting SoftBank and its vision fund to try and get the deal, is that the, the, the people behind uh, the vision fund, which was one of the vehicles that invested in WeWork, were always very divided on this stuff. You have... Um, the guy Rajiv Misra, who was running the fund from London, who was never quite sold on, on, on WeWork. But you have the the SoftBank founder and CEO Masayoshi Son, this Japanese billionaire, who was very very impressed with Adam Newman and seems to have basically been carried away by by the guy's charisma. Um, and that seems to have all turned on ahead as as the IPO um, process kind of just stalled. And now they look they look ridiculous, frankly. I mean, they're they're valuations of private companies just totally lack credibility at this point. All right. Well, I'm, this is a topic that we're going to be returning to again and again and again. I, I, it's, I think it's pretty clear from what we've been talking about. But look, Lee, uh, Liam and Rob, thanks so much for coming on and, and talking us through that. It's been, been fascinating. Pleasure. The 178-year-old iconic British travel brand Thomas Cook has finally sunk beneath the waves. It took 250 million pounds of Fosun Tourism's money with it. Sharon Lam is here talking with me in Hong Kong about what this means for Fosun, which is you know, owned Club Med, um, this big overseas serial acquirer. Got this whole happiness economy of tourism and travel and finance they've been trying to plug together. This seems like a big setback, Sharon. 
how big of a deal is it? Right. So, Pete, as you mentioned, um, Thomas Cook is the world's oldest travel company. And it collapsed on Monday because the British government refused to grant it a bailout of £150 million. And so they've had to launch the biggest peacetime repatriation effort in the How many the people are we history. talking about? Yeah, there's, so there's hundreds yeah, of thousands hundreds of, of people thousands. stranded all over the exactly. place. Exactly. And I think um, now they have to, you know, airlift and, and you know, rescue <laughs> stranded travelers. Have been, I think word is reported 150,000 stranded Brits. But the reason why this is interesting from the Fosun's side is that back in August, Fosun actually agreed to a recapitalization plan where they um, would have injected 450 million pounds in return for a 75% equity stake in Thomas Cook's tour business and also 25% of its airlines. And pretty much that deal didn't well, come Yeah, through. because it, it was, so this was, Fosun has had a minority stake in this company mm-hmm. for a while. I think they've been joint venture partners since 2015, and they haven't had control. And now they're going to build this up. But they needed other investors' cooperation, right? They weren't going to be the only people putting in money. We had other Mm -hmm. stakeholders, and yet the deal didn't seem to cross the line. And now but everybody is taking a 100% write-down. What was the holdup? So I think part of it was that, like you said, it wasn't just Fosun putting up the full amount, 450 million pounds was also expected from the others. Equivalent Um, amount. Right. Before there were kind of fears of the shareholders being diluted, but a bigger issue kind of resurfaced this month when lenders said that they needed another 200 million pounds on top of what they originally wanted. So Just to keep it afloat in the short term. And there are rumors circulating that there might be even more money. You know, so on the one hand, it, it makes sense to not throw good money after bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, yet uh, Fosun shareholders don't seem that excited about it. I mean, you might think they would be happy to be let off the hook for bailing out this kind of staggering colossus, given how indebted Fosun tourism is. I um, mean, yet they're upset. Why isn't the market celebrating this? Yeah, the shares actually fell over 4% in Hong Kong yesterday when, when the government decided not to give them a lifeline. And I think part of that has to do with what you mentioned earlier, which is that Fosun has been trying to develop this happiness ecosystem and where they're kind of betting on tourism and making all these overseas acquisitions. And so the Thomas Cook... And this, just, this seemed like one of their more sensible acquisitions in a way, or one of the more deals. Right. I mean, these guys own, like Fosun International, the parent has stakes in soccer teams, soccer all teams, sorts of French strange stuff um, <laughs> that, that don't necessarily seem that connected to their theme of travel and so on and so forth. And it fits in with the Chinese travel story. Yes, Chinese yeah. outbound travel has held up fairly well, right? So in the first half of the year, domestic travel spending actually grew 13.5%. So it's growing at a healthy clip. And I think for Fosun, they're really banking on the Chinese traveler. Um, and I think they are the second biggest source of revenue for them right now. Clearly, that didn't do much for the partnership with Thomas Cook. I mean, if, if there were hopes that Fosun somehow was going to connect Thomas Cook travel with, with Chinese tourists, it doesn't seem to have done that much at this point. Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, investors could be quite disappointed with this. Well, we'll see what happens next for Fosun. <laughs> They've had a rocky period already, and it looks rockier. The share price hasn't been doing very well. And there's not a lot of other targets out there for them at present, um, do you think? or There are some you know, smaller listed travel operators in Europe, so they might be eyeing that. Another possibility is that once, you know, so Thomas Cook is now insolvent, but then a lot of their properties and assets, like hotels, might be up on the block as well. Um, so Fosun could maybe swoop in and, and compete for that as well. So we'll see. All right. Well, we'll see what they do. Thanks for talking with you, Sharon. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for that, guys. Uh, now, we've got George Hay on the line from London. Welcome back, George. How are you doing? Yeah, but good, to, good to speak to you. So we're going to talk about uh, what's been happening at Climate Week this week here in New York, and specifically what's been going on with uh, some of the pledges that we've got from the banks and the asset managers, which 
let's be honest, we, we, we think it's good they're doing this, but also, you know, it's a, it's a little bit underwhelming. Why don't you talk us through uh, what we've seen and, and why we think it's not, not quite as good as we'd like? Well, I mean, the, the, the kind of um, uh, the pledge that everyone knows about in the ESG space is this thing called Principles for Responsible Investment, which um, pretty much everyone yeah. and his dog is um, signed up to. So they've got 86 trillion of assets of their signatories who are represented by them. They've been, they've been going on for some time. And um, basically, they are, um, it's obviously kind of a good thing because they try to get um, uh, investors incorporating environmental, social and governance um, criteria into their investing. But um, everyone uh, also says that it is a kind of slightly meaningless thing because even though they've got all these people on board, um, if, 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 they, if those people are actually um, acting in an ESG compliant way, then there probably wouldn't be a, com- a climate crisis anymore. So, But the PRA is beginning to push a little bit back against yeah, that absolutely. and trying to get in, in, in two members ways, to do right. stuff. Yeah, it's, it's kind of two ways. Like One, that they, they are proposing to boot some people out, uh, some com- uh, companies or asset um, uh, owners or investors out if they're not... Um, if they're particularly egregiously uh, not following PRI principles. Another thing they're doing is um, uh, they're setting up a kind of leaders group where they're saying these guys are the um, gold standard, these guys are the people who are doing it right. So basically, anyway, lengthy preamble, but coming into the Climate Action Summit this week um, at the UN, there's there's a new one called Principles for Responsible Banking, and there's a kind of asset owner alliance pledge uh, by right. by twelve um, mostly European asset owners. So, um, and then the banking one is about 130 banks, about a third of the overall sector. So, so, so first of all, um, pretty obviously, there's a there's a quantity problem in that that the people who have signed up to these pledges are clearly not representative of the overall sector. Um, however. Uh, they, you know, it's it's kind of going in the in in the right lines, and uh, the asset owner one is all about kind yeah. of committing to be net zero, um, carbon neutral by uh, twenty fifty. So, so all the all those things are, are good, but like uh, um, I ha- I have spoken to more than one bank who haven't signed up for the principles for responsible banking precisely because they're worried about this kind of pledge inflation, which devalues yeah. the currency of the whole thing. So where, where do we go from here? Let's, let's start with the banks. So, um, you know, this whole idea is fine. And it, you're right, it's not the entire banking system. But, you know, a third of it isn't bad. And you've, you've yeah. got to get the, the thing going. But they've been talking about it for quite some time. Yeah. But, you know, we, we did we did um, see one bank come out with something a bit more specific, didn't we, this week? Yeah, Natixis, yeah. The so French bank. Yeah, exactly. So um, basically, one way to make a, a club um, of people not suck is to, <laughs> is to uh, have a kind of um, as to make people want to want to join it, and if you have a club that does slightly suck, then um, then another way of uh, improving things is to have a VIP area. Now, Natixis, this French uh, investment bank, um, have potentially kind of created one by saying um, they are going to um, off their own bat um, make their investment deci- sorry their their lending decisions um, based off um, what they describe as um, risk weights, uh, which are kind of compliant with climate change. So uh, what does that mean? That's basically all banks, ha- all banks risk weight their assets, their loans um, uh, for the regulators in order to work out how much capital they have to um, hold. Right. And um, Which what- then affects how much money they'll make off it as well. Exactly. But um, what Natixis are doing, they're, they're not actually um, changing their regulatory capital, but they are 
in they are kind of wearing a self-imposed kind of hair shirt where they're going to say um uh if we we're going to group all our different um all our new loans we're going to group group them into different buckets and um ones which are particularly kind of polluting um if they are uh, in that bucket they will have to they we will kind of uh, assume that they are carrying a higher risk weight and conversely yeah. ones that are um greener will be um uh, assigned a lower risk weight now as you say that means that um in terms of their behavior they sh- that should incentivize them to do more green lending and um that's just a kind of uh it, it you know obviously if if everyone did that then um it would make quite a big difference but uh, it's it's quite it's quite good that Natixis are kind of sticking their neck out and and what's interesting is that um uh, a number of uh, their competitors rival banks and even a few regulators are um I understand quite pleased that um Natixis are doing this because there's this kind of chicken and egg problem or or, or first mover advantage to uh, disadvantage problem with anyone actually right. doing anything tangible so so there's a there's a reasonable chance that this actually kind of focuses minds um and kind of deals with the greenwashing problem that's so yeah. prevalent I'm in the sector yeah. I mean, I suppose it's, it's sort of a, a roundabout way of imposing a carbon price, isn't it? Because you're saying basically we, we will uh, self-impose our higher capital limit on the the, the, the dirtier projects, yeah. which means to earn money on it, we'd have to, to, to for it to be worthwhile for us, we'd have to earn even more money, even more return to even think about doing it. Yeah, so, and it, and from yeah, and from an investment pers- perspective or from a lending decision perspective, that just yeah. naturally naturally you you gravitate. It's just like in a, in a non-climate sense, it's like banks are will gravitate towards mortgages because you have to hold less capital against them and therefore their returns yeah. look, look better compared to something yeah. like corporate lending. So it kind of makes yeah. sense. It's just, it's what, what's interesting is that it's, it's, it speaks to a kind of stasis amongst kind of uh, central bankers and bank supervisors and banks. They, they all know what they need to do, which is to kind of incorporate yeah. climate risk into their capital calculations and, and get moving. But it's quite actually getting, actually doing something other yeah. than generalities is quite difficult so that's right i mean they've all i said that what was it 34 banks earlier this year came out including the bank of france and the bank of england saying look this is what we need to do i mean it was good words but action counts and that's what natixis is doing yeah. uh, more than others i think switching then to the the asset owners i actually did go and speak to some of them at an event after the announcement on monday right uh and and they made actually quite one of them made a very interesting analogy as Anne simpson from um uh, Calpers, the, the the California State Pension Fund, um, and she said, "Look, she said, I, 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 ref- I, I think back to the, the the old Irish joke about you know a ma- an Irishman meets another man on the way on the road and says, you know, how do I get to Tipperary? And the other man says, well, you probably don't want to start here. And she said, this is kind of where we're at. So we know we should be further along. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You know, we know we need to be further along, but we've got to start somewhere. And you know, the, she said the best thing about what we've got is that we are the asset owners. We can tell the asset managers what to do. So yeah. the fidelities and others of this world, and maybe even some of the big, um, the big um, yeah. index funds uh, like BlackRock. Uh, but yes, we appreciate that. You know, we've got a lot to do, and they were still talking about you know just getting the right ideas about you know, how much carbon uh, are we exposed to in our portfolios. You think it's 2019, guys? I mean, we've been talking about this for four years plus. This should be yeah. a bit further along, but yeah, you know, you you mentioned that as well, right? That the whole idea that you know it's good to get started, but come on, guys. I mean, we we need more than this. Yeah, well, I suppose I suppose the the thing that strikes me about that pledge is that it's it's only twelve yeah. of them, which is better than zero. Um, there's also uh, it's also very despite Calpers, it's predominantly European. And what 
If you talk to anyone in the ESG space, what becomes very quickly apparent is that um, the Europeans get it for yeah. kind of political and kind of yeah. uh, other institutional reasons, and the um, Americans uh, kind of don't. And um, what the key the key thing that this conference in Paris, I was at the, the PRI in person thing. Um, one uh, recurring theme was that the asset owners really needed to pull yeah. their fingers out because they're the ones. They're the ones, if they kind of made a real stink, um, then asset managers, companies, all the rest would just basically have to fall into line. And um, so, you know, in, in, from that respect, this net zero asset owner alliance is, is um, you know, clearly quite a bit better than nothing because it really mm. does, it sends a message that at least some asset owners are bothered about this. However, it's like you say, it's kind of... Um, uh, <laughs> Quite a lot needs more needs to be done for for for, yeah. for them to be really kind yeah. of. Yeah. So what it. we need to see is is a lot more noise coming out from them and a lot more action, a lot and not just more words, but also you know show us how you're actually changing things beyond beyond the the low hanging fruit we've seen this year. I think already with you know Shell and BP and others sort of changing small things in the margins. All right, George, thanks out. You best leave it there. I know you and I are looking far more at this, uh, so are some of other colleagues. So we'll be back with far more on climate risk as it hits financial markets in the future. But but thanks so much for coming on. That's been great. Thanks very much. Bye. That's our show for this week. Thanks to our guests, Sharon Lamb, George Hay, Pete Sweeney, Liam Proud, and Rob Siren for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ross Shoulder, Lauren Miller, and Laura Browner. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister show, The Exchange, on iTunes. And please do share your opinions about our shows. Join us next week for another edition.